This morning we're going to read from God's Word from the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 12. Actually what we'll do is read from verse 53 of chapter 11 and then down into chapter 12. Some of you may be on the McShane reading schedule. And this was a passage that was recently read, actually for yesterday. I've enjoyed particularly thinking on these incidents of the Lord's having to deal with the various shortcomings and failures of his people, particularly pointed out in some of these chapters in Luke. Um, there was a verse that stuck out to me as I read through it, and it seemed like, here's your text. And I thought, how? <laughs> how? This is not something I, I can imagine myself ever pulling anything from. But the, it stayed with me, and I, I pulled down a commentary and thinking I was going to stay, and I put it right back on the shelf. After, after No, I can't. Mm, so then I pulled it back off the shelf. And yeah, this, I think, is where the Lord would have us to go. Uh, and then as I started thinking, it started expanding, and I started seeing the message greater uh, impact than I had thought. But I'll mention what I'm saying in just a moment, and you may, you may say, yeah, how, what are you going to get out of that? We'll read from Luke chapter 11, verse 53, down into chapter 12. And as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things, laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. In the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trod one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore, whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which ye have spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that they that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. Ye are of more value than many sparrows. We'll end our reading there. We trust the Lord will bless his word to us for Jesus' sake. The text that I'd like to take is verse 1. Particularly the first part of that that was suggested to my mind to deal with. In the meantime, there was gathered together an innumerable multitude of people insomuch that they trod one 
upon the another. What do you make of that? Well, I think it does serve as an illustration. It serves as a backdrop for the message that the Lord is stressing with great fervency to those that would hear him on this day. But we trust the Lord will allow us to hear as well. So we're taking that as our text. And I want us to think on what I am entitling, What Matters Most? And perhaps you'll see with me as we go through why that is our title. Before we go further, let's just ask the Lord to meet with us for Jesus' sake. Father in heaven, now we would pray that you will bless the word of God. We pray that you will use it in our hearts and souls. We pray that you will draw us closer to the feet of the Lord Jesus as we think on these things this morning. Bless us. Speak to us. Allow the presence of the Spirit to be amongst us. And these things we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. The scene described in our text is not unique in the fact that a multitude waited to see the Lord Jesus. There's many places where it makes comments of that sort. And oftentimes you'll read along with that that the Lord sat down and taught them or did something for them as they gathered to him. These people had perhaps become used to thronging him that they might have something provided for them or done to relieve some of their distresses. Yet the scene that we have here in Luke chapter 12 is singular in the sense that the assembling of the multitude was on the heels of a great scene of impending violence which offered the setting for the Lord's instruction on the paralyzing and poisonous effect of self-righteousness. We read in Luke chapter 11 verses 53 and 54 uh, and we read those particularly to establish the background for the words that follow in chapter 12. The incident described in chapter 11 in those verses is not readily understood from just the words that we have in our English Bible. Again it says, And he said, and as he said these things unto them, the scribes and Pharisees began to urge him vehemently. I don't think we understand what that says. And to provoke him to speak of many things, laying wait for him and seeking to catch out of his mouth that they might accuse him to the point that they would have uh, done in that day, perhaps what they would have done in the day when the Lord Jesus was arrested by the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests. So I say the incident described in those verses is not something that we understand. When we read that it says that they urged him vehemently, that's a statement that could be well taken that they were violently approaching him in order to assault. It's sort of interesting that the Lord Jesus would be invited to a Pharisee's house to eat and that the whole thing devolves into this incident of violence. It's been said of this moment that it was a scene of violence probably unique in the ministry of the Lord Jesus or perhaps more violent than any other time except Calvary 
And probably it was a moment of danger to the Lord per se and to his disciples as well. But with this controversy going on, there was another thing that was taking place at the very same moment. There was in the same place of the gathering of these who were against the Lord, a gathering of an innumerable multitude. So vast that as they sought to come close to where Jesus was, they began to trample on each other. Surely this was a noisy scene. Perhaps we might also call it a sad scene. The gathering of the needy and broken people trying to get to Christ was so desperate that the sick ones lying on the ground were being walked on and walked over by those who wanted to get closer to where the Lord was. On the one hand, violence. On the other hand, desperation was seen. And this is the backdrop for the message that the Lord then brings before the gathered crowd, perhaps with many still being the Pharisees who wanted to harm him. Now, you know, it would have seemed probable, perhaps even possible, in a natural thing, that the Lord would have withdrawn from such a moment. Maybe he would preach instead a message about repentance. Certainly that would seem to apply. However, you see, in this moment, the Lord offers a very pointed warning about the incredible danger of self-righteous hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Why does he do this? Why does he address this to his disciples? Was this the most important discussion to have at the moment? Many may not have thought so, but some who did hear the Lord Jesus, later blessed him for what they heard. You read that later in chapter 12. So I want us to think upon the Lord's address, what he says here, why he says it, in light of what we have before us, the scene of the innumerable multitude. Why does the Lord Jesus say what he does? Well, I want us to think on this as our theme. There is great danger to the soul in the evil of self-righteous hypocrisy which the devil will use to destroy those ensnared by it. The Lord Jesus knew this was a time of danger. Not so much danger to himself but danger to his disciples danger to this very multitude which he addresses. I've got four things I want us to consider this morning. The first point I want to consider with you is the issue itself. The issue. Although the Lord could see a host of needy souls about him, his words in this moment of great need suggest the enormity of the issue at hand. There is immense danger in the hypocrisy of self-righteousness and self-delusion. It is an evil so vicious that men are destroyed totally and forever by it. May we learn that as the truth suggested here. There is great, enormous, eternal danger in the hypocrisy of self-righteousness and self-delusion. Now again, remember, 
In chapter 11, the Lord had been invited to dine with the Pharisees at one of their, one of their house. Why? You might know, the first question you might even, why would the Lord even have done that? The Lord was not afraid of the Pharisees. But as an invitation was made, so he went. But they asked him to dine with them. We might ask the question again, why? Why did they do that? Well, was it to honor him? No, I think the scripture makes it very plain, and we've noted this in the past. The goal of the Pharisees was in that moment to trap him. It was to assault him, perhaps even to the point of arresting him. And how does all of this scene at the Pharisees' house begin? What do they start with as far as their means of questioning and asking the Lord about his doctrine and what he thought? Notice it begins, and when you read down through parts of chapter 11, it began with the subject of the washing of hands. Why don't you and your disciples wash your hands the way that we do. Now keep in mind that the washing of the hands, the ceremonial aspect of it, if you want to put it that way, the uh, tradition of it, the practice of it, made up by the Pharisees, the Lord you must wash your hands in a certain prescribed way. That was Pharisees' notion, and they were trying to corner the Lord on this. Why did he not wash his hands as the Pharisees did? Well, the Lord uses that as a springboard to begin to point out the hypocrisies of the Pharisees. In fact, he even begins the pronouncement of woes upon them for their evil hearts. Now, before we go further, let's just note, the Pharisees were not always in such a place of rank hypocrisy. G. Campbell Morgan makes the comment about the Pharisees that the Pharisees were originally a commendable group. They arose as a group, as an order, during the years of the Maccabees, which was uh, a number of years, 100 years or so, or 200 years, I can't remember the timeline of that, before the coming of Christ, there was a, a general rebellion against the uh, outsiders who were ruling the land. And there was, by uh, Judas Maccabeus, the revolt and so forth. But during those years, there was the rise of the Pharisees with the intent to keep the nation pure according to the commands of God. In fact, Morgan says it this way. They were to the Jewish people what the Puritans were to England. Their start was commendable. And again, they were constituted as an order to prevent the nation coming into contact with other nations and losing its purity and identity. Perhaps you will remember Ezra. At the end of the book of Ezra. It talks about how the Jews, when they came back into the land, were guilty of mixed marriages. And there had to be the tragic day in which this was dealt with. The Pharisees, in response to any of those sorts of aided this order to try to preserve the purity of the people 
and purity of God's commands. So you might say it also that there was a passion for what God had said was to be the distinction with other peoples. But by the time of Christ, though, they had lost their spiritual and moral influence. It had began a magnificent movement at first, but lost all by self-righteous hypocrisy. It would say, well, how was this done? Because they, rather than leaning on the Lord and looking to the Lord and giving their hearts to the Lord, decided what we'll do to maintain the purity is that we will start creating extra laws. These are laws that are relative to God's law, but perhaps the borders are expanded so that things can be done that would keep us from violating God's law. For example, the keeping of the Sabbath day. Well, then it was their mind, well, if we're going to keep the Sabbath day and make it a day of rest, then we need to limit how much a man can actually walk or travel on the Sabbath day. And so you even see that referred to in the in the Gospels, that the, the Pharisees had a day or else he's in violation of the Sabbath day principles that God has established for his people. Was, they had countless number of man-made regulations that they used to try to put a fence around God's law, meaning, uh, meaning that if you kept our law, then you would never be guilty of breaking God's law. It was a safeguard, but it became itself a law. But in so doing, they soon became those who looked at the keeping of the externals as that which was the proof of God's blessing and their own righteousness. Again, we might even ask, where does self-righteousness and where does hypocrisy even begin? Well, keep in mind, do not think of this uh, incorrectly. Hypocrisy is not the denying of God's law. It is not antinomianism in which no man, there is no law at all or every man is doing what is right in his own eyes. This is the opposite of that. In this case, there are many laws. Most of the laws are not God's. But how well you keep the external laws shows how righteous you are. The problem with that is, first, you are your own judge. Keep in mind... The man who is a self-righteous man is a man who will be his own judge. He doesn't yield to God. He yields only to his own judgment. There is no giving of an account outside of self. But second, the problem with this whole idea of the Pharisaic self-righteous thought process is that nobody keeps the law. You have all these different things that you say that you uh, have that will help you to not break God's law, but nobody keeps them. That's what the Lord Jesus is pointing out in uh, Luke chapter 11. They are breaking them at every hand. They are not only not keeping them, but they're lying about it. In other words, here's the Pharisees who are breaking the laws that even they themselves have set up, and there is a cover-up, there is a deception on their part that takes place, There is the keeping up of pretense, the keeping up of appearance. Uh, They have the long robes and they they sit in the high places and they do all the things that go along the outward show. But in their hearts, 
they ought to be. There's an outward show, but there's inward wickedness. And a man that is in such a place as that will soon be a man who no longer fears God. That is completely evident in what the Lord Jesus is saying about these men. They no longer fear God. They no longer love God's law. They see themselves as their own judge. There's a byproduct of this. A man will then, on the basis of this, begin to look around at others and find them lacking. And he finds that he also is lacking, but he finds that if he is able to mask his own sins so that others see him as upright, he can congratulate himself that he has the desired effect that he wants before men, while at the same time acting as judge not only over himself, but judging others. Now let me just simply say this. This is an evil that the flesh loves. Pride rises, and self-excuse becomes a constant. The judging of others to prop up that false view of self becomes an absolute necessity. If I'm going to make myself feel good about myself, I have got to find lacking in others. Now the point that I want to present to you is that the Lord Jesus speaks of this hypocrisy and calls it leaven. Now of course we know, most of us, that leaven is that which is in the modern day um, equivalent to yeast. It is that which gets into the meal and causes it to become um, full of the yeast-like um, effect that is needed to bake and make it rise. This leaven, though, is not just something that is stagnant. But when he's saying, beware of the leaven, he's saying, keep in mind that what the Pharisees are doing here, this hypocrisy, this evil of self-righteousness, when it begins in you, will spread. It is something that will become more and more. In fact, it is contagious. It is going to be in you like a cancer. In Matthew chapter 16, the Lord Jesus, talking about the leaven of the Pharisees, states that the leaven of the Pharisees is the doctrine of the Pharisees. Well, keep in mind, it's not just the teaching of the Pharisees, but what they do with the teaching that is being involved here. It is what they taught and the extra rules that they established, but there is also the inclusion of the falseness of their lives and more, meaning the state of their hearts. So in other words, what the Lord Jesus is saying here is this matter, this danger of self-righteous hypocrisy is an evil that spreads like a plague. It is contagious. And again, it is an evil that the flesh loves because it is makes the man who is in such a condition both the judge of all and the doer of all. So here is the issue. The Lord Jesus comes from this place of controversy, of violent assault upon his person, comes in front of this innumerable multitude, and then he starts preaching the thing that he sees is the most dangerous point 
that could corrupt it. Not to know the salvation of God. That's the issue. Well, we took verse 1 as our text, so we need to come back around to the innumerable multitude. What about the needs of the multitude? So I want us to consider then the imagery. The imagery. Here was a massive crowd. But I want you to see more than that. More than just being innumerable in in that it was a large Here was an eager crowd. Calling over each other to get to where Jesus was. You might say it. What an opportunity. What an opportunity do we have here? Surely, this can be seen in a couple of positive lights. Some would want to think. Let me just suggest it to you. Perhaps what some would think. In an occasion like this, people falling over each other. Well, here's an extraordinary evangelistic opportunity. These people are needing to know the truth. They're, They're trying to get to Jesus with all that's within them. So forget the Pharisees. Start teaching the crowd the truth of the gospel. Hey, let's fish for men. The water is full of them. Here we are. Here's all these people. Let's get doing the work of evangelism. You think that well, that, that makes sense? An innumerable crowd. And you can't they're all, there they are. You might also think this. Here was in the, fa- in the face of the Lord Jesus having the controversy with the Pharisees, a great moment in which the Lord could prove the truth and power of his person. It could be verified. He was questioned by the Pharisees. His healing the multitude would put all that to rest. You guys don't think I'm able to be able to speak the gospel? You, you call me into question because I don't wash my hands? Well, watch this. You think, well, that's, that's certainly an option here. That should be right. But then you might also say, well, because of the what we see here, this great crowd, here's a multitude that needs the compassion of the Lord. Here the heart of the Lord can be seen as it is for his gentle compassion and his readiness to be merciful. All of these things, you would say, here's what we could be seeing here with this innumerable crowd so eager to get to Christ. But the Lord does not take this situation as men might. I want you to think about it this way. The Lord sees a great danger, and as a good shepherd, he defends the sheep. It's as if, here's the wolf, or here's the bear, or here's the lion. The first thing that needs to be done for the flock is that it needs to be defended. I am going to present to you the great danger, the thing that is of most import first then we'll deal with other things so the Lord Jesus speaks as he does now the description of the crowd offers many applications when I was thinking of that those words innumerable multitude what struck my heart initially and thought I thought I was going to end up 
taking as my theme of thought uh, was the answer to the question, what does that suggest? Innumerable multitude of people. And the thought in my mind, how many needs would have been such a crowd? How many needs would have been before the Lord? All these were tumbling over each other so that the scene was one of noisy confusion. But what were the wants and what were the needs before the Lord? Or perhaps we can put it this way. What oppressions were there? What shames were going to have to be dealt with? What fears would the Lord have before his eyes? What depressions or what sin and what guilt? The innumerable things that the Lord had to deal with all set before him. Not only was there an innumerable number of people, but there was an innumerable number of problems and sins and distresses that the Lord would have before him. And I say, here are, in suggestive form, a host of all the issues of heart and life that might be brought to the Lord for mercy and grace. In fact, we might even ask ourselves at this point, how many of those kinds of things do we have? How many things do we have in our hearts that we would need to bring before the Lord Jesus? But the Lord preaches about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and offers his solemn message of warning. Why? Why not help the crowd with the gospel and then help their needs? Let me put this observation to you. Those innumerable needs that men might have do not block a man from understanding and receiving the Lord Jesus. The fact that you have a distress of heart or a need of soul does not say, don't think of Christ. In other words, these things that the Lord allows to men to suffer with are the very things that often cause men to seek him as they were falling over each other to try to get to him. They were being brought because of their actions and their sins. These things were actually as being used by the Holy Spirit, bringing them to where Jesus was. These were not hindrances. These were not blocks. But self-righteous, cancerous hypocrisy does the opposite. When men are caught up with the outward conformity to supposed laws and rules, the heart grows hard. Rather than seeking the Lord Jesus, those hearts find fault with the Lord Jesus. That's the problem with the Pharisees. They didn't, they didn't want to come to the Lord Jesus. They were there to find fault with Christ. Here is the point to be made. Prideful self-righteousness will hinder a man from seeing and coming to Christ. And in such men, you think with me. See if this is not striking you as true. Men who are the self-righteous sort, these hypocrites, like the Pharisees, they look at the subject of faith and they label it fairy tale. Mercy becomes weakness. Love for God becomes a stumbling stone to be avoided. You know, it's very hard to congratulate yourself or enjoy the fruits of pride 
when you have to be humbled before God. And men who are of such a heart and mind will not humble themselves before God. The Lord Jesus then is warning against a foul evil that keeps men from him. Saying one thing and living another will move you away from Christ. Men who live as the self-righteous do, they are not the spiritual elite that they pretend to be. What does the scripture say is God's expectation for those that would walk with him? Micah chapter 6, verse 8. You may know this word. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord doth require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. That is not anything like the self-righteous hypocrisy that the Lord Jesus is pointing to. This verse is the very opposite of the leavened life. So here I say is the point. Where that you try to live so to approve of yourself. It will keep you from Christ. You say, why is that so true? Let me put another verse in beside it. James chapter 4 verse 6. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Why is it that a man who is self-righteous and filled with pride is going to find so much trouble coming to the Lord? The answer? The Lord resists him. The graces that are needful for your heart and my heart to be able to come to where Jesus is and to find the goodness of God is not available. It is not there now. The Spirit of God will overrule and bring a man to the end of himself and break that pride and bring a man to be humble. But it's not until we are broken and contrite that the Lord has respect unto us. The self-righteous hypocrisy, this I'm good on the outside, I'm all good because I'm doing the things that I'm supposed to, that in reality will keep you from Christ. It doesn't make you commendable to Christ. Now we have to ask the question further. Did the Lord ignore the crowd and their needs? This innumerable crowd, these ones that were really an imagery of the very needs that they carried with them, does the Lord neglect them? No, he spends some time teaching them. And then you see in the very next chapters, chapter 12, chapter 13, and so forth, the Lord's beginning to teach these people the various things that he would have them to understand, keep in mind, the Lord never will forsake the one that comes to him. But sometimes he does first things first. Things that perhaps you and I would say, I don't understand that. Well, there's a reason for it. In this case, the Lord was giving a warning of that which prevents men to truly come to him. These people were coming. The Pharisees, they were not coming. Beware, because what they are suffering from will keep you from coming to find what the multitude eventually would find. So, I come to my third thought, and that is the instruction. The instruction. The Lord gives instruction on the deadening effects of self-righteous hypocrisy. First, it leads to death. 
then, of course, to everlasting misery. But the instruction that the Lord gives about these people who are such, first is this, that the matters of self-righteousness will be unmasked. This is not something that's going to be, uh, a man can perpetually go on in this. No, there's going to be a day of comeuppance. You read verses 2 and 3 of chapter 12. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore, whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which ye have spoken in the ear and closet shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. You Pharisees, you hypocrites, you self-righteous ones who exalt yourself, congratulate yourself, judge all these false ways will be unmasked. The way of the hypocrite will be made plain. And though a man might be pleased with how the world thinks of him and glories in it, the truth will be exposed and shame will accompany. Why is this going to happen? Why is it that the Lord will unmask the unrighteousness of the self-righteous? Well, I think it boils down to this. There is none good but God. Do you remember the young man that came to the Lord Jesus and said, Good Master, what must I do to have eternal life? And the Lord Jesus says, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but God. Ah, there's a point. There is none righteous but God. There is none righteous and pure and holy except God. There is no man that will be able to stand in his flesh and glory in his flesh in the sight of God as if he is righteous. God will not tolerate that. No flesh will glory in the presence of God. That's instruction. That is seen here. Well, what hope is there then? Well, one of the disciples that heard the Lord say these things, to whom these words were addressed, in fact, Peter makes mention of what the remedy or the hope is when he says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you in due time. Here's what's needed. The casting away of all that we would seek to do in ourselves. To make ourselves look one way or another. Cast it aside and come humbly to the Lord. Admitting that we are but sinners. Lost and undone. And in total need of the forgiveness, the washing and the saving of our God. So the instruction is that the matters of self-righteousness will be unmasked. But the second thing that's taught here is that the matters of sustaining graces will be unending. The matters of sustaining graces will be unending. When a man is humbled in the sight of God, even though all may seem as helpless as it did to the hundreds and the multitude, the Lord will not despise the lowly, the humble, the contrite heart, but rather will show mercy. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7 says that in the ages, or may we put it this way, I think it might even be better appropriately put, that throughout the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. 
throughout the ages, in all of the ages that are to come, the Lord will prove himself unendingly to be gracious to those that come to the Lord Jesus in truth and humble themselves in the sight of God. Unending grace. That, I say, is part of the instruction that you have here. Well, I close with one last thought. And that is the implication. The implication. Because the Lord Jesus spoke these words primarily to the ears of his disciples, it would strongly imply then a couple of truths. First, that this deadening evil of self-righteousness can harm the believer. He's saying to his own disciples who perhaps were with him in the house and saw the attack of the Pharisees upon their Lord. He said, beware. Beware of this evil. Because you being yet in the flesh are prone to this prideful condition. Now, this will not everlastingly condemn the saint. But having this malady, this evil heart of self-righteous hypocrisy will mar the life. It will destroy the peace and it will make you useless in this day as far as the service of Christ. Beware of this. Keep your heart humble before the Lord. In other words, continue to acknowledge before God what you are. You have not arrived. You are not something. You cannot judge the others that are around you. You cannot glory in all of your little regulations. Man-made. These things will deaden you. These things will make you useless. Beware. But then, this is also true. This is implied that this evil that the Lord speaks of is a root evil from which many others come. Or as one old Puritan said, pride is that cur dog from which all other sins are whelped. This is a root evil. A host of sins are spawned out of pride and self-righteousness. Such that we cannot fulfill the great commands of God with this kind of heart. What, what does the Lord say is your chief responsibility? What is the great commands of God? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. A self-righteous man can do neither. A prideful man will do neither. In fact, the thought of loving God and loving the neighbor becomes a burden. An inconvenience. A cost. is a root but this is also implied that coming to the feet of Jesus is the remedy for every matter if this is an issue come to the feet of Christ now I would just have you just think the Lord makes a very plain statement about this he was in the house of a Pharisee named Simon you know this incident and into Simon's house Somehow, 
comes a woman who was a great sinner who again comes to the Savior's feet and kisses his feet, washes his feet with his, her tears and wipes his feet with her hair and so forth. And Simon, the Pharisee, the, the self-righteous one, says, well, if he knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't allow her to do that. And the Lord Jesus says, this woman is now free because she loves much. You, Simon, loved little, if at all. You couldn't do the first commandment, could you? You couldn't do what the great commandments of God were, could you, Simon? This woman, because of the humbleness of her heart and the seeking of the feet of the Lord Jesus, is now forgiven of her sins and now has the edict over her, go in peace. Coming to where the feet of Jesus is, as our title says, this matters most. What matters most? What the self-righteous Pharisees are doing in exalting themselves and making themselves look a certain way before the crowds that look upon them or coming humbly to the feet of Jesus. The Lord, again, makes this a very pointed lesson. One that we must heed because it is so contagious. Beware of wanting to approve of self. Do not live your Christian life so that you are just able to approve of yourself. That is hollow. That is prideful. That is destructive. But come to the feet of the Lord Jesus. Walk humbly with him. Love mercy. Do justly. That is indeed what the Lord would have his people to do. That is what matters most. Well, may the Lord be pleased to allow his word to speak to our hearts for Jesus' sake. Let's all pray. Our Father and our God, now we would pray that you will bless the word. Pray that you'll use it within our hearts and souls. Pray that thou will help us to be those who are helped of the Spirit of God to see when we are liable and apt to go down the very road that we are thinking of today. Lord, help us to love our God. Help us to love those who are indeed our neighbors. Help us to do that which is pleasing in thy sight. Lord, may we be those who eschew evil by eschewing pride in ourselves. Lord, may we only ever realize that we are nothing more than sinners. We have been saved by the grace of God. We have been made to live when we were dead. And yet, we are those who have a tremendous outlook of being before thee in that day where you are. Lord, I pray that you will now seal the good of this word to our hearts. Use it for Jesus' sake, we pray in his precious name. Amen.